the book of Esther chapter 2. Now, when we come to the book of Esther, a lot of folks approach this book like a fairy tale, okay? And we like fairy tales. Probably one of the reasons we like fairy tales is because our life isn't one, and so at least we got some stories where they have all real perfect happy endings. And so when you come to the book of Esther, it kind of gets like a cross between Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast. And that's kind of how a lot of folks just kind of think of Esther. They may have heard a little story about Esther in Sunday school class way back when, and that's how they go about it. However, what you need to know is that uh, really Esther's life, the book of Esther, it's not a fairy tale. It's actually much closer to a nightmare. And if you are here today and you're wondering, can God really use people that seem to be pretty distant from him? You're going to want to pay close attention to the developments of chapter 2 in the book of Esther. We are going to encounter a person that is completely obscure, who is going to suddenly be thrust upon the world stage. And this individual is woefully inadequate and drastically unprepared for what lies ahead. Now, just to kind of bring you up to speed here, you remember from last week, we were in chapter 1. What's taking place there is Ahasuerus. His Greek name is Xerxes. He is having this massive royal party. It's a six-month deal where he is trying to rally every single provincial ruler and leader to get him to align with his cause because he wants to go back to Greece and seek vengeance for his father, Darius, who had passed away, and he wants to destroy Greece that had sent Darius back in defeat. And so he's rallying and mustering the troops and uh, he going, he's going to have the culmination of this six-month party with the week-to-end-all-weeks party. And the crown feature of this is he's going to bring in Queen Vashti. And she's supposed to appear, and the text just says that she's supposed to be wearing just her, her crown, uh, which suggests that uh, this is completely inappropriate. The queen says, you know, I don't think so, all right? That may sound like a good idea for you and all your drunken buddies and your soldiers, but I don't want any part of it. She says no. That throws the kingdom into crisis because all of a sudden we get the start of a women liberation movement and he's consulting with his advisors. What in the world? How do I handle this? And uh, so they actually make their plans of what they should do. And so they they send out this edict. So everybody's going to all wives are going to treat their husbands with honor like that's really could be legislated. And then they. Uh, find themselves in a situation where she's no longer queen. Vashti is gone. The throne where she sits her, as queen is vacant. And so then the king gets focused back on war. He musters about 25,000 troops. So the events of chapter 1 take place in 483 B.C. He musters about 25,000 soldiers, and they set march over into Greece. And we talked about what that looked like. It was a total disaster. Not only did a good chunk of his army get wiped out, he lost almost the entire Persian navy in a huge defeat. When he makes his way back into Persia, back now we're about 479 B.C., where the events of chapter 2 take place, he is a defeated man. He is humiliated. He has suffered a disastrous defeat. The treasuries of Persia are now defeated, and he is discredited in the very eyes of the subjects that are looking at him. And so he... He begins to just try to find any way to cope being a king who thinks he's a god on how you handle this kind of defeat. And all sorts of bad things take place. He uh, starts trying to flirt with some of his officers' wives. 
He is seething with anger. Scholars tell us that he was ruling by pride. He was living in a society that was filled with danger. And one of them even said that it's the pomposity of buffoons. Foolishness and pride reigned. And so when you come to chapter 2, you've got Ahasuerus, the great king of Persia, Xerxes, his Greek name. And he's not doing real well. He's in a bad place. And so I don't know if he's trying to listen to country music to try to help him out. Uh, Maybe he watched some episodes of Duck Dynasty. That didn't seem to do it for him. And he is discouraged and he's upset. And when you meet him in chapter 2, it says, verse 1, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And so you find this king, and now he's thinking about his wife, his queen, that he dismissed, and kind of what took place. And you see like there's this tinge of regret. Now, he had lots of concubines. Concubines are secondary wives. He didn't know them very well. They served a function and a role. They were prized possessions in his life. But he's thinking specifically about Queen Vashti. And I'll just tell you, for King Ahasuerus, it's all about him. You know, you need to understand this, that you're made for glory. In fact, you're made to glorify. You're made for praise. The problem is, is we think it's about us. It's about glorifying ourselves and praising ourselves. And that's what King's trying to do. And so he's, he's depressed, he's discouraged, he's thinking about Vashti, and that is making his attendants, his advisors, really nervous. Because you know Why? It was his advisors that actually said, you need to get rid of this woman. You need to depose her as queen. If he kind of thinks like, you know, I really miss her. I want her back as queen. If that ever happened, if these are the same advisors four years later, they're dead. Because you know that she's going to kill him. We've already talked about how vicious this woman could be. So there are all of a sudden, man, we've got to really think this through. We have got to scheme and plan. So verse 2, then the king's attendants who served him said, Ha ha, hey, we got it. Hey, listen up, Don't, stop thinking about Vashti. Get those pictures down. I don't want you to think about, hey, we've got something for you to focus on here. Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And that virgin has the idea of any woman of marriageable age. This is going to be kind of a, and this time, it's, she's going to be a teenager, maybe your early 20s, and they're like, hey, hey, hey we, got a, we got something for you. We're going to find the best. We're going to find beautiful Young ladies, for you. And then he says, hey, listen, king, come on, come here, come here, listen. Put that picture of Vashti down. Here, give me that. Okay, verse 3. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom. Remember, this is a three million square mile kingdom, 127 provinces, about the size of the, the United States. Let's, let's gather every beautiful, see that in verse 3, young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. So this is what we're going to do. We'll bring them all in, the most beautiful ones we can find throughout the entire empire. Beautiful, stunning, attractive, maybe talented, but it's certainly beautiful. We're going to bring them in here, and we'll, and we'll do this. Verse 4, look at this. Then... Let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in the place of Vashti. <laughs> what do you think? He's thinking about all that. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. 
Remember I told you last week, oftentimes your decisions are only as good as the advisors you've got. These are foolish advisors. He is once again being led into another major problem. Think about it. Is is any woman going to ever be all satisfying? That's what he's saying. King, what you need is a good woman, a good wife. Let us help you find it. You know what this king needs? He needs God. He needs someone to point him to truth. Well, that's not what these guys are doing. So they got this scheme, this plan. The more he thinks about it, he thinks like, you know what? That's a really good idea. Now, the Persians felt like that position of the queen needed to be held. The queen was held in extremely high regard. She had all sorts of revenue. She had influence. She had power. She wore the very finest that the empire could offer. All the secondary wives, concubines, and there could be about 400 of them, would all bow every time she moved. Okay? And that, she was a position of great authority. She had her own place. She pretty much did what she wanted. She was powerful. She was influential. And they're saying, you need another queen. So, now, if you get the idea that, oh, this is a beauty contest. And that's how a lot of people think, that, that Esther is the story about a beauty contest. We're going to get some really good-looking gal, and she's going to win. Or it's kind of like in a modern-day parable, really what we've got going here is like the bachelor Persia, okay? The Persian version. I mean, that same sort of mindset works 2,500 years later in today's world. And that's what they're trying to do. But if you think that this is a beauty contest where the most stunning woman is going to be rewarded with the the crown, you were sorely mistaken. These women, these young girls are going to be ripped out of their homes. They're going to be consigned to a very difficult life. And so we find that this is the plan. The king says, that's a pretty good idea. And you need to know that as soon as he said yes to this, this word went throughout the empire. And it would be a word of terror. If you were a young girl, or you were a family that had a young girl, the last place you would want that gal to be is in the harem of a king like Xerxes. And so in verse 5, we pick up some more information. Now, there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew name, whose name was Mordecai. This is the first time the term Jew appears in the book of Esther. Where Jews, where that term comes from, is that it, they were folks from Judah. So when they were hauled into exile, when the Babylonians in 586 hauled all the rest of the Jews in there, and there were actually a several series of, of de- deportations, when they brought them into Babylon, they shortened that from Judah, they just called them Jews. And that's actually where it, it still holds today. That's what it means. There is a particular one in the citadel of Susa, this is kind of where the king is reigning, whose name was Mordecai. And he is the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, and the son of Kish, a Benjamite. And when they say son of, that literally means the descendant of. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, there is a very famous king who is the son of Kish, a Benjamite. His name, King Saul. And Mordecai is the descendant of King Saul, and he has been, he has, likely it was his either his parents or his grandparents had been hauled into the deportation. He is now in, he's, he was in Babylon, and when Babylon was taken over by Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire, he is now kind of living in the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the Babylonians were a little tough on the Jews. The, when the Persians took over, they were a little more kindly, and many Jews actually thrived. They weren't just surviving. They were doing quite well. If you think that Mordecai is a good Jewish name, uh, actually not. Mordecai is from the, derived from the name of Marduk. 
which is like the chief god of the Babylonians. And what the Jews started to do is they would start giving their children secondary names, names that fit into the culture that wouldn't make waves. And so you've got this guy, Mordecai. And now, just to recall history, when Cyrus took over, 538 B.C., when he became, he was not only the ruler, but he actually took over Israel, and he became the great king over this great Medo-Persian empire, he allowed the Jews the very next year to go to Israel. They had suffered for about 70 years of painful punishment. And it's just like Isaiah spoke of, like God even moves this man to allow the Jewish people to go to their promised land. And 50,000 of them in the empire did, but actually most of them stayed back. If you were faithful, if you were adhering to the scriptures, if you were fired up about God, you would go back to Israel because, yeah, the place is a mess, but at least you could go back to the promised land and he actually had the permission to rebuild. Mordecai or his parents, they opted not to. They were perhaps so busy trying to fit into the culture, they didn't join the 50,000, some of the others that were trailing in and moving back to Israel. And so you find him there, and notice there's more detail given in verse 6. Who had, this is, he had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. They had brought, been brought in, and he's still living in the land. And not only is he living in the land when he should be back in Jerusalem, but notice what he's doing. Verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now, the young lady was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Mordecai is in charge of his cousin Hadassah. Or Esther. Now, Hadassah, it's, it's the word that could be translated myrtle. That's what her name means, Hadassah. But she also has a secondary name, and she goes by Esther. She is the only one that Leland Riken points this out. She is the only person in the entire book of Esther that actually is, it highlights that she has two names. And what it speaks of is that she actually kind of almost has two identities. She can identify with the Jewish people. That she's a daughter of Abraham and Sarah. She has a rich heritage. She has the law. She has the Torah. She had a wonderful heritage. But on the other hand, she goes by Esther. It's the the Persian word for star, but it is also, it's likely derived from Ishtar, which was the Babylonian goddess of love and war. Ishtar, Esther. And that's her name, and that's what she goes by. And the fact that it's pointed out that she has two names speaks of the fact that she is somewhat conflicted. She is trying to have a foot in both worlds. She is, at one point, recognizing and living within a Jewish world, but yet she's all caught up with the opulence of Persia. And so we find this girl with this dual identity, and Mordecai, her cousin, is watching over her and taking care of her. And notice it's it's pointed out that she is actually a very beautiful woman. Now... Uh, If you're looking at the text here, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. But what is going on in the empire? At this point, we have the harem scouts. And they are literally going to every one of the 127 provinces. And they are looking for the most beautiful, the most capturing, the most talented of women. And they're going to bring these women to the capital, Susa. Now, what do you think is going to take place in the empire when this gets out? 
Well, all of a sudden, if you have a daughter, you're going to do everything you can to prevent this from happening. I would, I would imagine that people would lie that they even had daughters. They were probably trying to put these girls into hiding, cover them. Um, there may have been like finding any potential maritable guy. Like you could, we could marry my daughter and just marry him off. Because the last thing you want to do is have her in a harem with this guy, King Xerxes. Any of you dads out there? I just want to know, where are my dads? You got it? I got Okay, yeah, whoa. Tell me. Does this sound like the kind of guy you want matched up with your daughter? Is this, really? You think you'd be all right with that? Oh, if you're thinking it's all about money, I'm like, well, that's be pretty prestigious, you know. What if she ended up being queen? I mean, it's one in 25 million, dollar, 25 million chance. That's not, maybe it happened. I could be important. Listen, I got two teenage daughters. I, I'd have to act. It might be a short fight, but I can't have my daughters anywhere near this guy. Men, you can't be passive, especially when it comes to the women, especially when it comes to the young women and your daughters. You've got to speak up. You can't like, well, you know, they're old enough to make their own decisions. We'll just see what happens here. You cannot be passive if you were a dad. You're going to have to fight. You have to take a stand. You're going to have to say, no, this is unacceptable. But what we find, these harem scouts are over. And, and notice what happens, verse 8. So it came about when the command and decree of the king was heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai. Uh, Josephus writes that there were 400 of the potential 25 million females living in the empire that were now gathered together. And that notice that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now, what's taking place here is when these women were literally captured, taken, they actually became the property of the king and they were actually considered his wives, even though they never met the man. They, had, they were at least assigned at this point the secondary status of a concubine. But they are now considered his property and his wives. And so he gathers all these women. And we don't know if Esther wanted to be gathered. Maybe she's like, hey, that sounds pretty cool. I could end up being queen. Or maybe she hated it. I have a feeling that she would never want to leave whatever family she had left. She's not going to want to be a part of this. But nonetheless, she also is taken. And so she's now been assigned the status of a concubine. She's been captured. And, but notice this. Just like you see with like Joseph or like Daniel, verse 9, now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So with Esther finds favor with this, this chief eunuch, Haggai, and notice what Haggai does, verse 9. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food and gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Haggai, this eunuch who is overseeing all this pandemonium, there's something about Esther. And so he gives her the very best. And it carefully points out that he provides her food. Esther is Hadassah. She's Jewish. That means there are Jewish laws of what she's to eat. And yet, she's going to eat whatever is put before her. You see, there's decisions that have to be made as to how do you live and function in an empire that is completely has nothing to do with God, and yet you are one of God's people. She decides that she will eat whatever is put before her. And so she does. 
Now, this is really interesting because do you remember when Daniel was hauled into exile by the Babylonians? Daniel chapter 1, Daniel says, we're not going to eat all this food that God says we, the Jewish people, are not supposed to have. We're supposed to be different and distinct. So we're not going to do it. Remember, he makes this little proposition. He says, hey, listen, I know we're supposed to be eating all this pig stuff and ham and all, but you know, I, we can't do it. Shredded pulled pork, we can't do it. So I'll tell you what, I want you to feed us vegetables and water. And if we are fatter and stronger after your little time period, then let's just keep on with that program. And you remember, God honored that. You don't see those same convictions with Esther. It's as if she's already slipped completely into Persian mode. She fits in very well with the culture. Now, we're, we're, we're seeing her, and she apparently is gaining favor. She's making the most of the opportunity. And Esther's behavior is in sharp contrast to a guy by the name of Daniel. Now, notice this. Look at verse 10. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. You see, she's passive. She's following Mordecai's advice. Don't do this. And she's kind of like a leaf that's caught up in a river. Decisions are always made for her. Esther never speaks. Esther doesn't make decisions. We never see her praying. She doesn't read the Bible. She's not worshiping. She's just going with the flow. She is caught up in the current of the culture. She is caught up in the activities and the festivities because now she's got a one-year deal at a spa treatment here, and she's just totally caught up with it. And And the author wants us to know that Esther is following the advice to match completely in to the culture. She's completely passive. And notice verse 11. You want to see, what do you think Mordecai's doing? If you want to see what it looks like, like a dad and his daughter several hours late up for a curfew, well, he is pacing around. He is totally nervous. Look at verse 11. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. You know, why is it that Mordecai didn't like put a burqa, you know, one of those large coats, over Esther and haul her off to Israel. Why did he do it? Why did he go passive? Did he not have a choice? Or was he himself so amalgamated to the culture that he wasn't exactly sure what to do? And all of a sudden Esther's taken, but I'll tell you what, once he sees what has happened, now he's nervous. He's got charge of this woman and now he starts realizing what has happened. And he's put himself in a very dangerous situation. You do not walk anywhere near the king's harem. Okay? You get close to those girls, those were the prized possession of the king, you die. And yet he's so concerned. He's walking in front of the gate. Unless he has permission from the head eunuch who's overseeing that harem, he's putting himself in a very precarious situation. And really, this whole scenario in Esther chapter 2 raises a massive question. You know, we're to be in this world, but not of it. Jesus said, I want, to, I want you set apart to the truth. Remember, he prayed that in John 17. But what does that really look like? What does it look like to be God's people in a culture that is going in a complete opposite direction? It was a huge issue for the Jews. Once they got pulled out of their, their promised land, once they didn't have the temple, they were struggling. Well, what does it mean to keep the law? Do we dress like the scriptures say, or do we just find the dress of the culture? Do we keep Jewish names? Do we pass Jewish names on to our kids, or do we just take the names of the culture that we're in? What about the dietary laws? 
Now we don't have the temple. What about our celebrations? What do we do? They were wrestling with these questions. These were huge questions. And now we have several generations down the line. Now, by the way, the Jewish people are still wrestling with this question. How, what, how do we live in the culture? So let me give you an example. There are the Hasidic Jews of Brooklyn, New York. And they believe that faithfulness to the Torah, the law, the word, that means that they have to be distinct in their dress and their customs and their food. And so they, they intentionally want to stand out from the rest of the culture in Brooklyn. On the other hand, there are many Jews that are like, yeah, that's not so important. And they just assimilate into the culture. Well, that's the Jewish people. But how about Christians, those who now find that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah of Jews and Gentiles? How is it that we live in this world? Let me give you a couple of scriptures for you to think about. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Remember, we are to walk no longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Remember that? Or Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does this mean in a culture that is going in an opposite direction? What does it mean to identify with Jesus? How are Christians to understand these admonitions? And I want you to wrestle with it. What does it mean for you? So let me give you like one answer to this. The Amish in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. They have decided that they're going to enshrine the 19th century lifestyle as holy. They're going to kind of forsake any adaptations of the modern world. So that anything, any modern conveniences that have been invented past the 19th century, they're forsaking. So they live with horse and buggy, no telephones, no electricity, no gasoline. And they are doing that to remain distinct. On the other hand, there are many Christians. They've like completely amalgamated to the culture. And they've made different decisions. And you need to know that Christians who desire to follow Jesus in this life come to some pretty different opinions when it comes to like drinking alcohol, dancing, forms of entertainment, how you dress, what is and is not acceptable. The problem is, is that most Christians have never wrestled with this issue. What does it mean to identify with Jesus and his people in this time. And you need to think it through. This is a significant issue that Esther chapter 2 raises. Like for instance, missionaries. When our, we send missionaries out, they have to be crystal clear what is in keeping with the gospel and what is just cultural Christianity here. Because you can't impose things that are not in the text. On the other hand, what does it mean to follow Jesus in cultures like Africa or Singapore or, or places that are quite different than the United States. Now, you're like, well, I'm not sure if this is such a big issue for you. Because, you know, for instance, if you identify yourself as a Christian at Baylor or at the hospital or where you're working at, at the job, are you going to take some heat? Probably not. I mean, you're not going to be in my office crying like, oh, they beat me up or anything like that. Nah, right? Because it's not, you don't pay much of a price. If you identify with Jesus. On the other hand, let me uh, take you to some scenarios where it's a little different. How about our brothers and sisters in communist countries like North Korea? Or in a Muslim country that 
has a fundamentalist control to it. The question of what it means to identify with Jesus and what it means to walk with him in that scenario, it can be extremely costly. It can cost you your life and your extended family. The problem is that most Christians have never actually given strong consideration of what it means to follow Christ. Let me tell you what happened uh, last century. Last century, the relationship of Christians in Germany to the Third Reich, when all of a sudden the Nazis were totally taking over, they actually took over the churches. And you had a lot of pastors that, that almost saw Hitler as like a Messiah. He was going to be the savior of Germany. At least he had a plan. He seemed to be able to rally everybody, and one country could be united. And he had, he had grandiose plans. And, and one of those plans was to exterminate the Jewish people. And we're pretty familiar with that. And the six million Jews that died, terrible deaths. But don't forget, there were plenty of Christians that had been rounded up as well. Because there were plenty of Christians that said, no way, we can't compromise on this. And they actually tried to hide some of these Jewish people. And if you were caught, you went to the same camps. And you died and paid the same price. And they wrestled with this issue. Because you know what their accusation was? It was called political treason. It's exactly in first century and the second century of, of after Christ. That's what they persecuted Christians for. Political treason, you're going against the empire. So what does it mean to follow Jesus and not compromise the most fundamental convictions of the scripture? Now, if, as American Christians, you might be thinking, you know, now I'm in the United States, and I'm never going to face this. And he got this kind of blissful idea of the separation of church and state, which I found that really most people don't even understand. And you're thinking that, you know what? It's never going to affect us. And we're never going to have to make that call. I want to tell you, you're probably wrong. You need to think this through. In fact, you can watch how it's happening in our time. Things are changing very fast. And if you have not wrestled with the issues of Esther chapter 2, of what it means to follow Christ in this day you likely are just going to get amalgamated into the culture. And the idea of following Jesus with no compromise is going to be a, a bygone myth. Well, we find that Rester and Mordecai, I don't know how much they wrestled with the decision. They just decided we're just going to go with the flow. And so they did. And verse 12, Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus after the end of her 12 month under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows. And this is, this is the ultimate Persian spa treatment. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for the women. Okay? That's what they're doing. And then this is what it looked like. They would get one night with the king. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Anything she wanted. Any clothing. Any jewelry. Likely she would bring like maybe a musical instrument. If she was going to sing, she could even bring some musicians with her. Anything to entertain and engage the king, to win the position. And so if you want to see what it looks like, verse 14. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Sheshgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. What this looked like is 
This queen would do anything to do she could to win the king's favor. When he requested sexual companionship, she obliged. She tried to engage him, to entertain him. But when that night was over, she's gone. And she gets sent to the second harem. And many of these women would never sing the king again. And let me just tell you, we know quite a bit from the Assyrian records what this looks like to be in a harem. You were then with all these other women. If you had a child via the king, that child would be considered illegitimate and would be raised up to have some sort of function within the palace. You would never see your family again. Don't get the idea that they just go up to the beauty pageant like, oh, I didn't win, I'll go back to mama and dad. You never saw your parents likely ever again. If you corresponded, it was always through a messenger. And it really, it just played with your mind. They would, these women would almost go crazy. They had to have these eunuchs try to control these women because they were, they were isolated. And they were, it was so foreign. They, it was more like being a widow in a very terrible situation, and yet they had all sorts of opulence and all sorts of finances, and they could wear whatever they wanted. It's just that their life seemed rather pointless, though it may seem rather plush. Well, then comes Esther's turn. Verse 15, now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go in to the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. She completely trusts this eunuch. You tell me what to wear, what to do. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibith, which is like December, January with our calendar. It's wintertime. In the seventh year of his reign. And the scriptures don't tell us what transpired in this night. We just know the results. Look at verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women. And she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, we know that she now is called the queen. You see that word love? That is a pretty broad word. It can mean deep affection, but it can also mean like a glutton who just loves to just do nothing. The word likely here would probably be translated be attracted to. Don't get the idea that in one night he just overwhelmingly fell in love with her and had a deep sense of commitment to her. I found my soulmate. Probably not. But he was attracted to her more than any other's. Something about that night demonstrated to the king that she had the qualities that would make for a good queen. And so he crowns her. And then he gives a huge banquet. Look at this. This guy loved a party. He's always looking for a reason to have a party. He found another one. Then the king gave a great banquet. And notice what it's called. Esther's banquet. Ishtar's, the goddess of love and war's banquet. For all his princes and his servants... He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. So he has this huge party and he wants everybody feeling good about it. And so he's even given from the king's bounty. Everybody's got food. And then he gathers the virgins. Notice verse 19. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, he wants to be crystal clear. This is the new queen that you bow down to. And so he gathers them. And notice this, verse 19. Then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther now has influence. She takes her cousin, Mordecai, and she gives him some sort of place of position of status because he's now sitting at the king's gate. This is where work was done. This is where contracts, government work was taken. Position of importance is given now to Mordecai. 
And she is now the queen. And so think of this. Out of the blue, we have this young woman. She is the least likely. She is an orphan girl. She has now been selected to actually now be the queen of the empire. And she is woefully inadequate. And the and she doesn't know, but shortly there is going to be perhaps one of the greatest challenges ever to come across Jewish history. And she's so ill-prepared for it. Out of the blue, she is raised up. And notice what it says. I don't want you to miss this because the author wants us to know, God wants us to know this. And he repeats it, verse 20. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. And what we find is Esther keeps going the anonymous route. Now, whatever happened to Hadassah? Whatever happened to this girl? Now, I know that I've burst your bubble. A lot of you, you were pretty excited that we we're going to do the book of Esther because, yeah, man, we got this woman. She is awesome. She's great. She's perfect. She's beautiful. She is everything I'd want to be. And now we start studying her and we start seeing as she really is. And they're like, yeah, she's got issues. She's got flaws. She's got problems. I'll tell you, I've really come to appreciate that the Bible paints people the way they really are. We like to always fairy tale like good people, bad people. But you know what? The Bible paints people with all their flaws and their failures and their issues. And it does so for this reason. God wants us to see he works with the broken vessels. Though Esther's, through Esther's failings, you know what we discover? We discover God's heart for flawed people. And we find hope for ourselves. You know, if God was looking for the perfect people... Obviously, Mordecai and Esther, eh, it's not going to work. Joseph, Daniel, not going to happen. They're not perfect. Of course, us, me especially, totally, eh, no way. Can't use a guy like me. Can't use you. Actually, God works through fallen, failed people. You see, what Esther needs, she needs transformation that only God can provide because she's lost her way. She's conflicted. She tries to live in two worlds. She's got her foot firmly stepped in, into two worlds. It seems like she's almost swept up by Persian culture. God's going to bring about a transformation. She's not following the law. She's now married to a heathen king, which has got to be miserable. By the way, Ezra, is when he's leading people back there, he actually has Jewish people divorce their Gentile wives because there cannot be compromise. Esther doesn't seem to make any stand whatsoever. And she is finding herself in a situation where she's almost lost herself. But I want you to know this. When we look at Esther and you look at what he does, God does in her life, it is the gospel of grace. You see, God displays his divine sovereignty even in those who are distant from him. And you're going to watch as this unfolds that God is going to literally transform this fallen, flawed Esther and her cousin Mordecai. Because that is what God does. That is why God has given us Christ the Messiah, to make us new creatures, to change us from the inside out. Your failures, your flaws, that's not the whole story. Even though you feel like you've walked far away from God and you have completely compromised the culture, no one knows that you're a Christian. 
you need to know this. God is not done with you yet. He is in the process of transforming his people. And so if you want hope, you want God. You want the God of Esther, the God of Mordecai, the God of us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just an amazing chapter of the Bible. You force us to wrestle with huge issues about what it means to follow you. And I pray, Father, that you would shape our convictions. And Father, help us to have hope, the hope of the gospel. That you're a God who transforms us through Christ. And that our wrongdoings and our sin and our failures, that is not our defining moments. But rather you are. So Father, give us great grace. Encourage our hearts. May we learn transformation from the inside out. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.